Hello, this is Carl Helliker, and welcome to Book Chat. Today, returning for a second engagement, and we're delighted to have him back, is Dr. Bill Cachetis, the author of this intriguing book, September Swoon, Richie Allen, The 64 Phillies and Racial Integration. Bill, welcome. Thank you. Uh, Bill, just as I mentioned, the subtitle of the book, Richie Allen, The 64 Phillies and Racial Integration, tells us a lot about the book, maybe more than the title, September Swoon. What was the state of racial integration in 1964, and what impact did the August 1964 race riot have on the Philly season? Well, Philadelphia was is a um, really a segregated city. Uh, you did have blacks and whites living in different pockets in the city with maybe the exception of Mount Airy, a section of Germantown. But there was a lot of tension uh, between the races at that period of time. You have to remember that uh, after uh, World War II, there were a lot of blacks that migrated up from the South for jobs and industry. Uh, now it was their children uh, who were not as docile as they were and they wanted change and they wanted greater educational opportunities, they wanted greater employment opportunities, and they weren't willing to take a back seat as their parents had. So they started voicing their displeasure in a very political forum. Uh, you also had uh, Cecil Moore, who was the very proactive president of the NAACP, who was leading the charge, so to speak, on such issues as uh, giving uh, black uh, labor, the black laboring class, uh, opportunities for bids on city contracts, uh, desegregating Girard College. So there were a lot of these things that were going on. And you also have to remember that Philadelphia was the third, had the third largest black population in the country with about 400,000 African Americans. So in August 1964, uh, there was a, a lot of tension, particularly in North Penn, the neighborhood where Connie Mack Stadium was, and uh, a very simple traffic violation stop uh, that involved actually a black police officer and a black uh, woman uh, turned into a very explosive issue uh, when the woman struck the police officer. and. Uh, as these things go, there were a lot of rumors that it was uh, a racial incident, that it was a white police officer and a black woman. And uh, all of a sudden, the looting started. Uh, there were buildings being torched. Uh, and we had a full riot on our hands. Now, did that impact the season itself? Uh, it's difficult to say. It impacted the season in the short run by drastically reducing the attendance at Connie Mack Stadium because Connie Mack was only a few blocks away from where that incident occurred. What is more difficult to discern is what kind of impact it had on the black Phillies uh, like Richie Allen, Johnny Briggs, and Wes Covington. You have to remember that uh, Allen and Briggs in particular were very young men at this period of time. Um, they were in their early 20s, a period of life where people were just starting out on their careers, trying to find their own identity. And here they are uh, in Philadelphia, a very intense racial climate, uh, looking at the, uh, the riot. And, and you have to think that 
some way it did affect their outlook on the city and and white people in the city as well. Interesting. You were uh, uh, fortunate enough to have Gerald Early, a very distinguished African-American jur journalist, write the foreword for your book. Uh, and he mentioned that few black people in the area rooted for the Phillies. Why was that? And did Richie Allen's presence make a difference? Mm, that's a good question. Um, I, I was really very grateful to Gerald Early for writing that forward because obviously I'm, I'm a white person. Uh, we're basically the same age and uh, Gerald Early is African-American and it was intriguing for me to compare notes how people from different races would really arrive at the same conclusions about that season. It wasn't surprising to me that very few black people rooted for the Phillies. The Phillies were the last uh, team in the National League to integrate, and they didn't do so until 10 years after Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier. Uh, during Robinson's historic crusade, the Phillies treated them worse than any other team in mm -hmm. the National League. Uh, they were a team led by a Southern manager with uh, a significant number of Southern players. So racial prejudice was uh, rampant on that team. And the Phillies um, were the last actually to integrate the clubhouse in Clearwater, Florida in 1962. So I think a lot of these things uh, played on the emotions of uh black Philadelphians, and they really didn't want to see much success. In fact, uh, black fans came to, out to uh, Connie Mack Stadium to see Robinson and the Dodgers play. There were probably more black Dodger fans in Philadelphia uh, than there were Phillies, black Phillies fans. So it's, it's not a surprise to me. As to Allen, yes, uh, he was a tremendous boost to the African-American community in Philadelphia. Uh, if you read the accounts in the Philadelphia Tribune, the city's black newspaper, uh, Allen becomes really the story uh, throughout 1964. And even onwards, uh, they followed him very closely. They were very excited that the Phillies finally had a black superstar. Uh, we'd missed out on that as far as the athletics were concerned because Reggie Jackson broke uh, broke in at uh, uh, in Kansas City after the A's moved. But imagine that. I mean, having having a Reggie Jackson break in with the Philadelphia Athletics when he's not only a black superstar, but he also came from Wincote, which is uh, suburban Philadelphia. But now black people had their own superstar in the team. Uh, so, yes, they were extremely uh, enthusiastic about him, especially you know, in the first 15, 20 games of the season, you know, Allen was hitting close to 500. So uh, Allen's appearance did make a bit of a difference. Yes, definitely. in attendance rates and the coverage of the team. Bill, uh, let's talk a little bit uh, about uh, the subject that will be near and maybe not so dear to uh, many old-time Phillies fans like myself. What exactly was the September swoon? Well, the September swoon is really the code phrase to explain the uh, last week and a half of the Phillies 1964 season after playing uh, brilliant baseball really for 150 games they were up by six and a half games with 12 left to play and they dropped 10 in a row to finish tie for second with Cincinnati uh, thereby blowing the pennant. Um, the difficult question is why? 
And there are three major theories about this. Uh, first was the injury to Frank Thomas's hand. Frank Thomas was a uh, first baseman power hitter that the Phillies had acquired uh, from the New York Mets in August. And for two weeks after he came to the Phillies, he carried the club. He went on a hitting streak that uh, put them deeper into first place. But near the end of August, he hurt his thumb and he was out of commission, which took a very big bat out of the lineup. Uh, Bob Carpenter, the owner of the Phillies, as well as some of the players, felt that his absence cost them. Second, I think more popular explanation for the swoon was Gene Bunning's or Gene Mock's decision to pitch um, the ace, Jim Bunning, and the number two starter, Chris Short, uh, with less than three days rest on three separate occasions. Uh, when he had other pitchers who were more than capable of uh, winning games like Art Mahaffey. Um, he exhausted those two pitchers, and because of that, um, they couldn't win. Another uh, excuse, if you will, has been the inexperience of the club. You have to remember that these Phillies were young. They were in their early to mid-20s. Uh, the only players who really had the experience of a pennant race uh, were people like um, Jim Bunning, who experienced it with the Detroit Tigers, and Wes Covington, who experienced it with the uh, Milwaukee Braves. Um, and these players, frankly, were very naive when it came to the tension that a pennant race would create. So they played brilliantly for 150 games, and then when it started to become tighter, um, they didn't have the experience to navigate that, that tough time. And the way many of the players leave it today, having interviewed them for this book, is that uh, it just simply wasn't supposed to be. It was a matter of bad luck. Uh, they had their losing streak at the wrong point in the season. Uh, so I think that's, you know, pretty much the way that most of them have reconciled the, uh, the swoon. Right. Uh, in, an intriguing quote from your book, and there were a lot of them I pulled out of here for the questions, but you say Richie Allen was the Phillies' first African-American superstar, but he was his own worst enemy. Can you talk a little bit about that? I think Richie Allen was caught in a no-win situation in Philadelphia after July 3rd, 1965. On that date, he and Frank Thomas um, got into a batting practice brawl. The press made it out to be a racial incident. If you talk to any of the players, it was not a racial incident. It was just the same old kind of bantering that uh, takes place in clubhouses and on teams. Um, but it just graded uh, both Allen and, and Thomas uh, to the degree that they had to let go some steam. But because it occurred between a white player and a black player, it was made into a racial incident. What made it worse was that Gene Mock threatened to fine Richie Allen if he said anything to the press about it, and then went ahead and released Thomas, who was a popular white veteran player. Thomas took his case to the airwaves, went on radio, and said some things that I'm sure he regretted later, uh, basically that Allen could dish it out, but he couldn't take it, and that they were protecting him. Uh, Allen went actually to uh, ownership and pleaded with them to 
keep Thomas because he had a family and he had mouths to feed, but it, it didn't work. And it didn't work because management didn't want to waste their time with a aging slugger when they had a young uh, potential superstar in the making here in, in Allen. After that, um, the press made things increasingly difficult for Allen. Yes, he was admired because of his tremendous offensive power, um, but at the same time, um, the Thomas incident made it a very difficult situation for him. And the fact that the Phillies were not as consistent in the field and they were losing uh, exacerbated the problems. I do think that the press held it against Allen that uh, the Phillies couldn't do more than what they were supposed to do because the expectations were high for him. So it became a vicious cycle. The press would write these things about race relations, the fans would eat it up, and then they would start to hold it against him. Allen tried to get out of it by requesting a trade. You have to remember that these are the days before free agency, mm -hmm. the reserve clause uh, bound a player to, uh, to his team. Bob Carpenter saw the future as franchise in Richie Allen, and there was no way he was going to trade him. So Allen started to do things to force a trade. He started to show up late to games or not show up at all. He started uh, scrawling letters in the dirt around first base, which just egged on the fans even more. Uh, and finally, in 1969, he did force the trade. But by that time, it, it was a nightmarish situation for him in Philadelphia. Interesting sidebar. Uh, in your book, you quote Marvin Williams, a player for the Philadelphia Stars, who says Jackie Robinson could not make the starting lineup for the Kansas City Monarchs. But, uh, of course, he may not have been the most talented player, but he certainly was the player to desegregate baseball because of his perhaps his college education, the way his bearing, the way he carried himself as a gentleman in a real class act. Uh, I know it's sort of an unfair question, but do you think Richie Allen could have ever played that role as uh, a baseball integrator? I, I don't think he could have, um, for the very simple fact that he was a younger man than Jackie Robinson was, and he didn't have the life experiences that Jackie Robinson had. As you just pointed out, um, Robinson had been to college, I uh, was a big-time athlete at UCLA. Robinson also served in the United States military. Richie Allen's coming right out of high school. It's comparing apples and oranges here. He just didn't have uh, the restraint or the life experiences or, frankly, the maturity at the age of 20 that Robinson had in his mid to late 20s. It, it, it wasn't going to happen. At the same time, I think it's important to note that um, Richie Allen, for better and for worse, forced Philadelphians to come to terms with the racism that existed in the city in the 1960s. He might not have done it with the same class and the same tact and the restraint that Robinson did, but he did it, and someone was going to have to do it. One of the good things about this book, Bill, is that it's, it's an outstanding social history, uh, uh, and it's not you know, it's probably not a book that's just going to please just pure sports fans, but people with a bent uh, for history and a people with an understanding of the important relationship between sports and society will enjoy this book immensely. Thank you. You're welcome. And the book itself, of course, the 64 season is the one that's indelibly printed in our in our minds, but it covers um, Allen's rest of his career through, uh, through Philadelphia, which went, I guess, through the beginning of 1968. 
But let's jump ahead a little in um, actually a year before 1968 from 64 to 67. By 1967, how would you describe the Phillies as a team and an organization? And do you feel that Allen was treated unfairly as a lightning, lightning rod for the team's situation? Uh, yeah, yes, I do. I think Dick Allen was treated very unfairly. Um, however, as I mentioned earlier, he did bring uh, about some of that treatment himself with his actions. By 1967, the Phillies were a team without much direction at all. Uh, Gene Mock and John Quinn, the general manager, in their elusive quest to capture a pennant, traded away some of the talent they had. Uh, immediate name that comes to mind is Ferguson Jenkins, who went on to become a Hall of Famer with the Chicago Cubs. Um, Alex Johnson was also traded, had a very respectable uh, major league career in the American League. These were the types of moves that they made to get players like Bo Belinsky and Bill White, who either ended up being complete busts or on the injury list all the time. And I think by 67, it was clear that they were never going to get that pennant. Um, and yet they still held on to that hope that Allen was going to take them, so to speak, to the promised land. Uh, Allen's case just became worse and worse. Uh, thanks to uh, the press, and he forced the trade by 1969. I might add that that trade, the trading of Dick Allen to the St. Louis Cardinals um, for Kurt Flood, among some other players, uh, also had its reverberations throughout Major League Baseball because Flood refused to play in Philadelphia because of the racist reputation of the ball club and the city and uh, held out and brought about a $3.1 million suit against Major League Baseball, mm -hmm. which eventually led to the hearing that paved the way for free agency in 1975. Um, so it was a very unfortunate set of circumstances in one way and in another way. Uh, was very fortunate, I think, for both Allen to leave Philadelphia and to bring about that arbitration hearing. The little general, Gene Mock, of course, was the manager of the Phillies in 1964. What happened to him in, in 68, and how would you sum up uh, Mock's tenure as manager of the Phillies? A missed opportunity. Gene Mock was 39 years old in 1964. He was as young a manager that a young team could have. He was a brilliant strategist. He uh, is at least in part responsible for some of the moves and structures of the game that we look at today, the platoon system, the double switch. Sometimes he overmanaged, however. And I, I think that uh, panic set in for him during the pennant race in 1964, and he could never get back there again. By 1968, he had had it. I think he realized that he was not going to um, take this team into the postseason. And it became clear to management as well. There were Problems were escalating with, with Richie Allen, uh, and management cut him loose. Uh, Mock was, I think, very wise in not bad-mouthing the organization or uh, Allen because baseball expanded that next year to Montreal, and he was the front-running candidate for the Montreal Expos and walked into a, a situation there. 
once again, a very young team in Montreal with some veteran players. Um, by the time he left Montreal, he had had it with young players. Uh, he said that he would never coach a young team again. He didn't want to be in a building process. He wanted veteran players. And that's pretty much what he got in Minnesota and after that, um, California with the Angels. I think the saddest thing about Gene Monk's career, though, is that he never did capture that pennant. He didn't capture it uh, in two other opportunities he had with the Angels. Who were the Chipmunk writers? The Chipmunk writers uh, are actually kind of a uh, nickname for uh, a young generation of writers who were frankly tired with the regurgitation of plays and scores and and at-bats, uh, the, the usual run-of-the-mill statistics that sports writers were reporting in the newspaper. You have to remember that radio and television uh, gave an immediacy to the games. If the fans could listen or they could see the games, they didn't need that kind of writing. So the, this younger generation of writers sought to go inside the locker room, take quotes from the players, cover their personal lives, uh, and dare I say, uh, exaggerate the truth sometimes or sensationalize stories. Here in Philadelphia, uh, that young generation, some of the members of it were Stan Hockman and Larry Merchant of the Philadelphia Daily News and Sandy Grady of the uh, Philadelphia Bulletin. And these were men who, I argue in the book, have to accept some responsibility for what happened to Allen because they were the people that were exercising time. And again, this racial turmoil within the club and the fans were buying into that. Did you uh, get to interview Richie Allen for the book? Yes, I did. I had much better luck, I, I hear, than most writers had with Richie Allen. Now it prefers to be called Dick Allen. I had two very lengthy interviews with him, and he was very candid with me, a very articulate uh, and insightful individual. I shared the final manuscript before it went to Penn State Press with him, and as you can imagine, uh, many of the things that were written in the book brought back some rather bitter memories. Um, but he thanked me for, for writing the book uh, and respected my independence as a writer to write what I felt needed to be written. Uh, so he respected my interpretation. That's more than I could say for some of the sports writers who I tried to contact repeatedly and never returned my phone calls. Bill, thank you so much for joining us today and talking about your excellent book, September Swoon, Richie Allen, The 64 Phillies and Racial Integration. And as the fine historian you are, you really approach this book from the angle it needed to be approached, much more than just a story of a baseball player, but the story of the racial situation and racial integration that not only Richie Allen, but all fans had to come to terms with and still do. Thank you. I'm Carl Hellecker. And this is Book Chat.